Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by Funkinsliff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, musicologist and author of Everything's on the One, the first guy to funk. If you don't have your copy, get on over to Amazon and pick one up. You'll be so glad you did. Whether you're watching the video version of this at Funkinstuff.net or on YouTube or listening to the audio-only podcast version from providers like iTunes and Spotify. As always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the show. Speaking of which, if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives. All kinds of goodies you'll get uh, early premieres, and it's all free, so make sure you sign up. Tell a friend, tell family. Also get your official Truth and Rhythm and Funkin' Stuff gear at the FunkinStuff.net store. Cool stuff like I'm wearing right here, Truth and Rhythm shirts, Show your support and love of the show and also the musicians and the music that they represent. Um, also want to give a shout out to the Funk Exhibition Center and Hall of Fame in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm very proud to be an official Funk Ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and keep the funk alive. And now, with all that, it's time to get on with the show. Enjoy. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, bassist, singer, composer Lonnie Marshall, also known as Meganet, who is founder and leader of the wild and woolly funk band Weapon of Choice. Heavily influenced by Parliament Funkadelic, he conceptualized a group's so-called nutmeg grooves that were first heard on the 1994 debut album. That was followed by more than a half dozen Weapon of Choice and Lonnie Marshall albums, all of them refreshingly quirky, fun, and of course super funky. Having also performed and recorded with greats like George Clinton, Fishbone, the Red Hot Chili Pepper, Shaka Khan, and Ice Cube, Marshall's still bringing amazing music to the masses. This year has been marked by digital re-releases of Weapon of Choice's catalog, as well as a new album called Cosmic Relief, Groove Healing, and Verbal Remedies. That sounds like the ideal cure for what ails us all during this crazy 2020, Lonnie. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, brother. I appreciate being here, and uh, thank you, everybody, tuning in. Thank you. Yeah, so my pleasure. Glad to be able to accommodate it, and, you know, I've been a fan. We were talking a little before we came on air, but, you know, fan going way back, and uh, had seen you around quite a bit, coming from Los Angeles myself, but uh, you never really connected, so better late than never, right? Yes, yes, we're always connected, uh, even if we haven't spoken, so... Definitely. We're in the same, you know, we're in the same, same flow, same frequency, so uh, we're, we're connected, but it's great to be here and be present to you. Absolutely. Um, and you're coming to us from Los Angeles? 
right? Yeah, yes, sir. Right in the middle of Holly, uh, Hollywood, Holly Wolf, uh, and uh, yeah, uh, a couple of blocks up with uh, I'm near Hollywood and Vine, where the the World Funk headquarters used to be, and uh, yeah, that's where a lot of my uh, my musical growth started. Yeah, it's Hollywood and Vine. I mean, you don't get many more famous intersections than that in the world. <laughs> yeah, yep. I think they were all around here. Charlie Chaplin and uh, Betty Davis. There's a, a quote that Betty Davis has. It says, uh, if you want to, uh, she told some upcoming actresses uh, that if they want to make it in Hollywood, take Fountain. So, take Fountain. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Very cool. Well, I miss it. I moved out uh, here to the south, um, you know, like t 10 years ago at least, and, and I miss it out there. So uh, good to uh, get some of that vibe back again through you today. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So um, you're from Los Angeles originally, right? I know your brother, Eric, also a musician. So could you just uh, tell the viewers a little bit about, you know, how you came up and how you got into music? Uh, well, I'm from South Central Los Angeles, and uh, my brother, Arik, is, he's two years younger than me, and uh, we, have, we both have an older brother and two younger sisters. So uh, five of us in South Central LA, near Florence and Normandy, which is, like, is kind of like a landmark now. Uh, People know where Florence and Normandy is. That's where I, I grew up, a couple uh, right around the corner from Florence and Normandy, and I uh, lived in a neighborhood with where the gang where the gang culture was started. Like what I lived uh, amongst the people that started. You know, the, were the pioneers or the legends like Big Tookie. I don't know if you ever heard of Tookie. So is that Bloods or Crips or what? They were uh, Rolling Sixties Crips, and uh, they were uh, so yeah. Tookie lived uh, uh, behind me on the block behind me. I lived on Sixty Eighth, and he lived on Sixty Ninth. And uh, Monster Cody, uh, both of these these uh, these people were real influential and uh, transformative archetypes that made a difference and they were they were heroes to me you know and uh so they were always around you know and i didn't know this until years later but they were actually looking out for uh for us you know we didn't you know i was never like gang banging or anything like that i i i was called homie by the some of the people in the neighborhood which was not it didn't mean you were cool or you know it meant that you were kind of square because you were in the house and you weren't playing outside, you know, that's why they called me homie. But, uh, you know, so uh, these people were my, uh, these, these people were heroes, you know, they had big flashy cars and they dressed flat, flashy, you know, they were like balling, like beyond even the videos that they, they, the way the videos look, you know, they were living like that. and. There were, uh, you know, they all used to hang out two houses down from where I lived, you know, and grew up. But they were like, they were like my uh, hero archetypes. So it was, it was kind of tempting, you know. I was like, dang, do I want to be like that? But 
I was always uh, uh, influenced and uh, impacted by Soul Train and music, you know. So that I was I was always focused and tuned into that, you know, and uh, you know amazed and just in that magical world, you know, that that music takes you no matter what level you're at of understanding or actually playing. So, uh, you know, I became immersed in, in music as, as early back as I can remember and uh, influenced by, like, certain songs, you know. Uh, my dad used to play the 45s over and over again, so that's where I learned a lot about from listening to the songs over and over again about arrangement and uh, you know instrumentation and and distinctions like that as related to music before I actually started playing. Who was he into, Lonnie? He liked Al Green, Curtis Mayfield, uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh, he liked some old school stuff too, like the Originals. You ever heard the Bells by the Originals? The group, the originals. Yeah, you heard that song, The Bells? I'm not sure that track. Yeah, he used to play that. That's an amazing track. We had, uh, Marvin Gaye used to write and produce those tracks. I never knew that until recently. Um, so he wrote that one, and you heard Baby I'm For Real by the originals? Yeah. Yeah, uh, Marvin Gaye wrote that and, and produced it too, I think. Uh, but yeah, my dad was, uh, he like had some good taste, you know. Fortunately, because he wasn't musical, uh, he didn't play an instrument. Um, you know, he had he had a really cool walk, too. You know, uh, <laughs> which is kind of rhythmic in itself. It was like a rhythmic expression that you know, but he didn't play any instruments, and he was like, yeah, I never seen him like dance or anything like that. But um, we watched Soul Train, and that made a big impact on me, too. Uh, Soul Train was done, was filmed a couple blocks from where I'm at, to right now. Um, but, yeah, I was impacted by Soul Train, and, and uh, you know, I was like, I wanted to be, you know, I want, I did, when I saw, I saw my older cousin, Tony, played guitar, he was uh, about five, year, four, five years older than, than me. And, uh, and maybe even more, but he played guitar. So he was the first person that I saw in real life that actually played the guitar that let me know that it's possible for me to do that. You know, if he's if he could do that, he's doing it right in front of me. You know, he's playing Earth, Wind, and Fire songs, and uh, you know, he's playing Beatles songs and Jimi Hendrix, whatever. So he he really inspired me, you know, and let me know that I could it would be possible for me to do it. You know, and I I uh, played a recital actually. I played a, uh, acoustic guitar when I was in elementary school, in fourth grade, and uh, I uh, I played uh, King of the Road. I played his one song. It was <laughs> it was a recital, so I learned a couple chords. But I didn't have a guitar. It was like one of the, it was the school's guitar, so it wasn't my own guitar. So I still didn't have an instrument until. Like until I was like uh, I was four, about four, fifteen, fifteen, you know, and um, so uh, yeah, I was influenced and inspired by music. So I was like, I was always focused on that. But the uh, the gang culture was like around me, you know, growing up. So 
that was like uh, tempting and, and like, uh, you know, provocative to it, you know. Well, just uh, like so many of the hip hop guys, too, that, you know, were inspired by that and came up in that, you know. Yeah. You're, you know, Ice, NWA and, and, and Ice T and all these guys that came from Los Angeles, too, that went in the hip hop direction. Yeah. Yeah, Ice, yeah, Ice T knows who, um, I think he lived, lived in the neighborhood where I, I lived. I used to live on 46 in Normandy also. I went to Normandy Avenue uh, School Elementary. And, uh, you know, I, I, the, uh, dr the, the school was right behind where I lived. So there was an alley and then there was a school behind me where the, where the drum corps used to practice, you know. So I learned all their cadences just by hearing them practice, the drum, the drum major, you know. And so I was like, I, and then I saw them perform, but, you know, they were like, click, the, the snare players would click their sticks and, you know, uh, click them, you know, one to another and uh, do all this cool stuff, you know, with their, with their sticks, flip them. And I was like, wow, I want to do that. You know, I want to be, be in that drum major, you know. And, I, I always um, like I always liked some of the bands from the, some of those inner city schools because I went to Santa Monica High School, you know. Yeah. And then I would hear some of those bands. I was like, man, they're kicking butt compared to our band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're in they're really into it and passionate about it, you know. And um, you know that's like that's the magical that's the magical element right there is that you know just having that passion for it and. You could tell they were into it, and they had all, all the distractions around them too. But they were focused. They practiced. But I learned that I learned the uh, cadences just by hearing them. So I, I wanted to be a snare drum player in the drum corps at my elementary school, and so I auditioned. And the uh, the drum major, he lived. His name was Paul. He lived across the street from me. Um, but he, uh, so I auditioned on the, on the snare drum. He put the sheet music in front of me and he saw me do all the, uh, cadences. I played everything perfectly from hearing it, but he, he saw that I wasn't looking at the, you were faking the music. It, yeah. you know? <laughs> and so he gave me the cymbals, like <laughs> he gave me two big cymbals. And, and so that kind of discouraged me for a bit, a bit about it, you know? And then I was thinking like, a drum, you know, like drums, uh, you know, you got to uh, carry all those drums. I didn't want to carry all the, the, lug all those drums around too, you know. But I was, uh, you know, I was like impacted by the rhythm, the rhythm pulse of it first. Because I was, I would hear like, we lived in the apartment uh, on uh, 50th and Main. And there were like lots of different ethnic groups in, in one small area and everybody was playing loud music so you know it was like and you couldn't tell where the one was coming from you know what was next door or coming from downstairs so you're absorbing or all of some of that uh, yeah exactly yeah. yep and and so yeah I, I auditioned to uh f on the snare i got the symbols i got kind of you know i got i i got into like uh comic books and you know like I, I would collect comics and I would sell comic books too and um, so I got into that and uh, when I went to uh, to middle school I, I was 
my bro my older brother his friend was have you heard of nene nene montez hmm. he's in the p he's in the he was in that he's kind of like the uh one of the villains in uh in that tear the roof off documentary you seen that oh i have seen that yeah well they talk about him a lot but his son was my older brother's friend and so that we got a chance to uh like they used to pick him up in limos and we would go with with him you know and hang out with p-funk and we went to uh we used to go to the world funk headquarters and we went to magic castle with them and i'm like <laughs> what is that don cornelius hanging <laughs> Like wow, I, I never got I never got into Magic Castle myself. <laughs> yeah, they were all heckling the uh, the magicians too. <laughs> for, for people that don't know, Magic Castle was I don't know if it's still there, but it was this pretty neat old house, big house in Hollywood, and it was magicians hangout, and you could only get in if you knew somebody connected to it. Right? Yeah, it was it was a very uh, elite, exclusive place, and and uh, yeah, me and my brothers from South Central, we're going, we're, we got limo picking us up and, and we're going with, with our favorite bands, you know, they're on our wall and we, you know, we were in the, we were in the P-Funk. I, I got a, um, I got a Funkadelic record and a Kiss record by a friend of mine's older brother, he gave me both of them at the same time. And, uh, and we were just, we were in the Funkadelic. Wh and, which and Funkadelic anything. album was it, do you remember? It was, uh, which one was that? I think it was Tales of Kid Funkadelic. Uh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we were we were into everything and, you know, digging for everything and anything. And, and we were into that. And, uh, you know, I was into, I was into Rick James, too. And I was into Duke Ellington and, you know, I was, I was into music, Chuck Berry and uh, Bo Diddley. You know, to me, like that Bo Diddley rhythm that he does on that, uh, dank, 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 dank. That's that like that the, box uh, guitar, yeah. Yeah, that's like the funk rhythm. That's like uh, if a guitar player is playing funk, they're playing that rhythm. And he was like, he seemed like the first one to really like hone in on just vamping on one thing, you know, without the twelve-bar blues to change to typical change, you know. And he'd wear it out from, too. He'd wear it out, and that, like, kind of, to me, like, kind of, kind of, paved the way for uh, what is known or what became known as funk. And you know, there's so much stuff before that that was funk. You know, before, you know, before the terminology or the description of it. The precursors and threads. Absolutely, yeah. There's some Louis Armstrong, and you know, since since. Uh, uh, lead belly, and uh, that's funky. But in, anyway, like life is funky. My life was was funky. You know, it's like how you know household stuff, and and uh, I always I um always like I never fit in anywhere being light skinned You know, <laughs> you know, and, and but I never fit. I I uh, had the opportunity to be in uh, other areas too. Like I lived in East LA for a little bit. I didn't fit in there. <laughs> I lived in Desert Hot Springs. I didn't fit in there. You know, South Central, I grew up most of my life. I didn't fit in. So 
I, you know, I like figured out a way to uh, be resourceful and, uh, you know, um, maximize my time. And, you know, I figured out that, like, people say you're wasting, don't waste my time, you know, that, that it's possible to waste time, you know. Uh, and it's possible that there's nothing wrong with, with that, too, and different names for it, you know. But, uh, so I was re very experimental, you know, I like to experiment in, uh, you know, that's where, where I was uh, focused. But I understand that you and your brother, though, also were part of uh, Bootsy's youth uh, group or something, and that was yeah. an influence, too? Yeah, that was through uh, when we were uh, going with Omar uh, to uh, boot, we, we became part of boot camp, you know, and uh, that was... We take photos for teen magazines, soul magazines, like right on, and uh, with Bootsy, and we got to hang out, and, and uh, we uh, got to go into the, we got to go to the Funk Festival with Rick James, Confunction, Barcase, Brides, Parlet. The L.A. Coliseum. At the L.A. Coliseum, that was like the, that was the great funk festival, and it was like, sold it looked like it was beyond sold out and um we got to go backstage and like we were like some of us were yeah i was into rick james i, I like rick james too uh mary jane busting out and sexy lady my dad was into that too rick james um and so we were at we were getting his autograph you know at his trailer and <laughs> somebody in the uh Somebody, somebody's uh, mom, somebody's, somebody's mom <laughs> didn't like that, you know, and he was like, you know, F Rick James, you know, it's all about this. It was like some kind of beef or something. I didn't know what was happening. We, you know, we were getting Rick James autograph and it was like some drama about it. Like, uh, you know, F Rick James. From some, from one, mainly from one particular person that you know, I won't even mention, you know, who it was, but it was somebody's mom that I that I knew. I'll just say that. How old were you, How old were you at the Funk Fest? I was uh, I was fourteen. I think I was fourteen. Yeah, fourteen. Yeah, and I actually. Uh, I actually uh, went into Bootsy's trailer and I saw his base, his space base, just on, just just leaning up there, you know, in the corner, and I actually plucked the the E string on the base, thinking it was going to sound like the records, you know, like not hooked like up to all that electronics, right? It wasn't hooked up to nothing, and yeah. it didn't sound like anything. I was like, I was like, wow, it didn't sound like that. Um, but anyway, we got to go on stage with Bootsy, and uh, that was like a transformational experience, just like going to the Funk Festival, going, like, seeing people I know from a neighborhood and stuff, like, trying to get to uh, the limo where uh, George and Bootsy are at, and they're coming backstage, and I'm, with, I'm walking with them, you know, with me and my brothers. <laughs> we're getting in, and we're backstage. We're just uh, chilling out. We're seeing the show, seeing people take their clothes off and uh, get tackled and get thrown, you know, all kind of crazy stuff. Um, and we go on stage with Bootsy. And um, 
while I was walking, before I, before I got up the ramp, there was a ramp going up to the stage. And um, before I got up to the stage, I was like, I must have been visibly uh, nervous, you know. You know how when you walk and you're, um, you're like, your knees start shaking a little bit. Like maybe on your gra walking to get your diploma or something to yeah. graduation, <laughs> that kind of walk. Uh, but uh, Don Silva, I, uh, she said, "Just remember, we funk." That's what she said. So that was like a, a you know really, really impactful, you know, moment. So thank you, Don Silva, Brides of Funkenstein. Much love. Was, I got it. I felt like I was empowered. By that, by that archetype, and uh, so I went. I, you know, my knees stopped shaking enough, long enough so I could make it up there on stage, and it was like amazing transformational experience because I felt the play like when you play in a pl in a sandbox. You know, I felt that kind of play. And I was like, wow! Not not only just the impact, I felt the play like just. Uh, radiating and expanding and just transcending all you know as far as the eye can see and beyond you know and I so can, i just i can feel ahead. it man i can feel it because i went to some of those shows too and it did have the same effect on me yeah the interaction and play I didn't go on stage the, but just being there yeah yeah and that it, that was like that's like magic it really is it's not talked about or taught as magic, but that's really what it is. It's like I was in, in the midst of some magical, some wizards, like doing an experiment. Like, you know what I mean? If you're, if, if you're in the room with Tesla when he was, you know, uh, doing some of his experiments or something like that. But, uh, and uh, Frankie, Frank Waddy, uh, much love, Frank Waddy, the drummer, he he um, was like playing with us, like because he would like he would speed up a little bit, <laughs> and he, you know because we were clapping and and um, saying burning down the house, and so he, but he was interacting with us, you know, and that was like that really blew me away too, that the interaction and the play part of it, you know. So I said, and then seeing all the people like what the effect that it had on every everybody else, you know, just created a vibe that like it never left me you know it's like from then on then on, i was like i think i want to do this <laughs> so that was my impactful uh moment right there i got a sad a little sad story for you you know i had a, a ticket through a friend to go to that show the funk fest at the coliseum mm -hmm. and um Unbeknownst to me, he 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 let another friend another friend buy it from him, and it was earmarked for me. And when I went to go get it, this other friend had it, and I I I, I chased him up on rooftops and all around our school to try to get back at him. Wow. Anyway, I never got to go to that show because of that. But I did oh, see wow. Bootsy at the LA Forum at the Monster uh, Rock Show um, in '78. And um, P Funk at the Starwood on 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 uh, Santa Monica Boulevard in like the, the anti tour, which was wow. awesome with the brides. So I felt like that helped make up for it. But man, I'm still mad that I missed that costume show. <laughs> wow, man, yeah, that was a 
that was an amazing, amazing event, you know. And then to see people on like uh, they had the football team was the security. I think the uh, part of the USC football team is what I heard. But there would be like occasionally like during the bar case set, you would see like a whole crowd of people just move to one, you know, move away from one area, and then there would be one guy jumping around naked, <laughs> you know, and, uh, um, you know, Barquets would be like, oh, leave him alone, he's just having fun, but the security guard <laughs> would go out there and, you know, try to, like, try to detain him, and they, he would just, this, this, this guy was just throwing them around like rag dolls. They were like big dudes, big football players, and he was just tossing them around like they were just poodles, you know. Well, but, I yeah. mean, I didn't hear any trouble erupted. I mean, for all as big as it was and everything that was happening, I mean, it came off pretty well, I thought. It was amazing. It was like, yeah, it was nothing but that. It was nothing but that. And like the bar case said, you know, they were just having fun. But according to certain rules, you know, it, 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 that's what happened, you know. And I, yeah. <laughs> so then, Lonnie, when did you actually pick up a bass and start really getting into the bass? Uh, I, got into, I got into the bass. I was um, like... Uh, Sure, I, I had a guitar. I had a guitar that was given to me by a friend of uh, the family, and uh, uh, acoustic guitar. And I, I used to play it, play it like a bass. I played the the top four strings, because I was in. I was like influenced by the bass, Larry Graham. You know, when I heard. Uh, Thank you for letting me be myself. You know, I was like, what the? And even everyday people, like, I was like, wow, I was blown away by all that, the, the Sly Stone stuff, you know. And uh, Sly Stone's music really was the first to feel like it was like communicating with me, you know. I feel like it was, he was talking to me, giving me some advice, you know. Um, so uh, I was like, but through Larry Graham's bass plan, I was like, I was into the bass, you know, I like that, and uh, and going on stage with Bootsy, I was like, yeah, I want to play the bass, but I had a guitar, it got taken away from me by a family member, the guitar, and so I was like, uh, I was like really uh, upset, upset, you know, that I didn't have the guitar any, anymore, you know, because that's what I was like practicing the bass on until I could get a bass. And so like after that, I got my guitar taken away from me. Um, I was like, uh, I got to get myself a bass. So nobody could take it away from me. It's going to be mine. I'm going to get it. And I don't know how I'm going to get it, but I started selling com comic books, and I used to sell guinea pigs. I used to breed and sell guinea pigs, you know. My sister and bred I, hamsters. <laughs> 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 it's fun, man. Guinea pigs are fun, you know. If you can get you, get used to the way they sound, and but they're clean, you know. I'm the one that cleans their cages, but they they themselves are clean. Um, but yeah, so. I like was I, I was on a mission, you know, because my guitar got taken away from me. I was like, 
uh, I got to get I, I got to get my own base and you know so I sold comic books and and I sold uh, guinea pigs and uh, I used to go catch the bus from 68th in Normandy and Western to El Segundo and uh, to Torrance and all over the place I used to, used to go to, for the comics and and the guinea pigs and I used to see in the school bus going going to school every day I see this green hollow body base that look, look shiny in a pawn shop window you know I would see it on the way to school every every day you know every morning and I was like I'm gonna get that base you know I had to get that base but I found out how much it was and I you know so I had my goal set and uh, you know I had I had uh, a lot of obstacles like like anything but I in I eventually uh, you know raised up enough money with uh, some help from my mom's uh, to get this base you know and uh, I got the base and I was uh, I was just like practicing from sun up to sundown basically I knew what I I knew what I wanted to do I wanted to sing and play at the same time. I wanted to make my own songs. I knew that from the beginning. I wanted to be original, you know. I didn't want to sound like anybody else. I was like something when I first started learning, you know. And I knew I wanted to sing and play my own songs. So I would practice from sun up to sundown. Ever since um, I first saw you, you always had that, that skinny, that little bass. Yeah, this one right here. Let me see. There it is. The Steinberger is made out of graphite and marble, and, and uh, this bass played the first notes ever at Coachella. This bass right here, wow! For the first, yeah, the first notes ever played at Coachella was this bass right here. Nobody knows that. That's a little bit of uh, for you trivia buffs <laughs> out there. But <laughs> that was what, like ninety-nine around there. Uh, well, they started calling it Coachella, you know, like closer to then. But we played in like ninety-five or six, somewhere around there. We played. We we opened up for Pearl Jam and Eleven. It was Weapon of Choice, and we were getting shoes. I was getting shoes thrown at me and glasses. Oh, wow. That's and like when I saw Prince at the. I saw Prince at the Coliseum for opening for the Stones, and I saw him get the shoes and bottles thrown at him. Mm-hmm. Pissed me yeah, off. Yeah, we. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was like, I I learned to expect the unexpected, you know, from since I was born, coming from where I come from. You know, one of my earliest memories was military in the street with, you know, with right with assault rifles. As when I was like, I was like walking around with my younger brother, and he was in a stroller, you know. So that was I knew it was a nutmeg world but and I, I also knew somehow that I asked to be here somehow so it was a you know for me it was all about like discovering what it was that I'm here to do okay here it is okay this is this is pretty nutmeg I swear <laughs> I heard the word nutmeg and that was always funny to me so that you know that became the nutmeg music that's the nut that's what kind of music we make is the nutmeg music which is a musical allspice and it encompasses everything and it is absolutely nothing at the same time so um yeah i used to practice all the time and they call me homie 
Um, but um, and I started. I, I taught my brother. I got an, I got another guitar, and I taught my brother some chords on the guitar, and um, you know how to how to hold. You know how to strum and, and hold his hand, and uh, you know he. I'd be practicing, and he would come and ask me to show him something else, and I would show him. And he came and asked me once, and, and I was like, I gave him a book. I gave him a book with all the chords in in it in the book. I said, if you sit, you know, if you're serious, you know, learn learn the chords out of this book, you know. And he like went and <laughs> went and stayed in there, and didn't come out. He learned all the chords. He could play all the he, he could play all the chords. I was like, whoa. I guess you're I, I guess you're really serious, you know. So. Um, then we we put together we uh, had martial law, um, which was me, Arik, and uh, drummer James Gray, and we used to play. We used to play around. Uh, well, actually, before this happened, I okay. Let me just go back to uh, like I'm practicing, and I you know I. I show my brother how to play, and he's playing. So me and him are starting to play and put stuff together too. Because I had a four track, and you know we used to we used to make we started making songs, you know. But as soon as I started playing, I started writing songs, you know. Actually, the song on a Weapon of Choice album, really relevant, called uh, Headspace. That was the first first song I wrote. That was like a riff I wrote when I was learning how to play the bass. How old do you think um, you were when you wrote the first one? That was, uh, I think I was about, let me see. I got a bass like I was about maybe 16, 16 I think. Around 16. Yeah. And how old were you when you first performed in front of people? Um, let me see. I played at a talent show, like about, uh, let me see, 16, let's see. I actually, I was like about, I think I was about 15 when I started playing. So I played the talent show when I went, um, at the, the school I went to, Mid-City Alternative on Adams and Arlington. I played the talent show with the uh, with the teacher, the music teacher Bernard, who played saxophone, and we played. Uh, what year did Forget Me Nights come out? Because whatever year that seventy eight, something like that. Yeah, whatever year that was. That Chris was the first time I, Yeah, exactly. I played that, and uh, I got to use my friend's filter. Filter uh, <laughs> babe, but anyway, yeah, I played that. Uh, Forget Me Nots by uh, Patrice Russian in a talent show. That was the first time. And um, I just started, uh, I just, I, I started, you know, I still was writing songs and recording on my four track and I was playing, I was recording songs with my brother too. We were putting songs together. And so I was like, what is the next, what is this next step here? What do, what do I do? The two you were, the two, I'm thinking the two of you were kind of like, you know, the Marshall version of like Bootsy and Catfish or the Brothers Johnson, you know, the bass and guitar combination. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's, wow, there's nothing like playing with my brother, you know, like her, uh, that family connection is like, that's intuition, that's like intuition even if you don't intend for it to be, you know, but um, yeah, so uh, I started uh, seeing the, the local trade magazines, like the, Re the Recycler, mm -hmm. and I would look in there for, for people who wanted a bass player, that you know that was into the stuff that I was into, you know, and I was into the cla I was into the Clash, really into the Clash, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of different stuff, old school stuff. Uh, like I said, Duke Ellington, and uh, I was into Weather Report and Fusion, and uh, you know, um, but uh, I started uh, looking at the uh, the trade magazines. And I saw this ad for a bass player, and they wanted a, a bass player that was funky. And they, I think they mentioned Bootsy in their ad, you know. So I answered the ad, and I was like, uh, "Yeah, if you want the you, you want the funky you want the funkiest bass player around, you know this this is who is who this is, you know, whatever. I don't know what I said, but I said something like arrogant or something like that, you know." cocky or however you want to look at it and uh, but the person they liked it they thought it was funny I was doing some character with my voice too um, but the person when I went to the audition for the person they were there and it was the uh, it was you heard of Hillel Slovak from the Chil Red Hot original yeah. Red Hot yeah yeah the, the, it, the, late, it was the late Hillel yeah the late Hillel Slovak the late great and he, it was his, it was his lady, his, his uh, woman, and her, uh, Addie. And she actually had a place that was near LACC, Los Angeles City College, in the eye clinic, uh, Mel, you know, Melrose, hmm. you know where the eye clinic is near Vermont? I don't know, no, I know okay. the streets, though. Yeah. Any, anyway, she had a uh, place that it was a pool hall actually, where that was a rehearsal place also, and that's where the Chili Peppers first formed. They were like they were getting ready for their first <laughs> first party they were playing, and that's when I met them, because they were getting ready for to play their first show, you know. But the first person I saw there was Jack Irons, who was playing the drums by himself, you know, and I I was blown away by that. He was he was. He wasn't just doing fills and fancy stuff, you know, like which is what I was used to, or with what I would imagine that drummers used to do is they they practice their flashy, fun, uh, you know, fancy stuff. That he was actually playing song arrangements by himself, you know. So I was like really impressed by that dis self discipline, you know, for him to uh, practice by himself. The band's not even there yet, you know, but they. I imagine they were supposed to be there too, you know, <laughs> you know. But he was there early, and you know, he was just practicing the songs until they got there. But uh, anyway, that's where I met the uh, Chili Peppers at when they were they were first starting right that's there. Back when they used to wear, you know, the socks on their cocks, and <laughs> that whole cre uh, body paint. <laughs> yeah, they were crazy. Yeah, yeah and so like. To fast forward, my brother, you know, he ended up playing with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, he played with Macy Gray and a lot of other people. But he ended up playing with them because the Chili Peppers used to come see 
our band, Mount Martial Law, once we started playing around, you know, they would come see us, and they actually got a, got uh, quite a few of their uh, their riff inspirations, I, I would say, from Martial Law, mm. as as did a lot of other influential artists that people you know wouldn't connect to it, but they they were all uh, they were all like uh, they were all where. I was going to show this later, Lonnie, but I wanted you to see that I have the actual copy. Whoa, you got the martial law right there. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> I, that I, don't, a, I don't mess around, you know. Wow. Yeah, let me show that this, is this a rare, That's a rarity right there. Yeah. That's a rarity. Um, yeah, how many songs are on there? There's uh, nine tracks. Hmm. And um, had Fish playing some drums. Mm -hmm. Kefis on keys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, there's some great tracks in here, and I like the way it's recorded, too. I mean, it sounds good. Uh, thank you, bro. Um, is Shine on there? A song called Shine? I think so. Yeah. Shine's on here. Yeah, that's a, that's a jam. That's Fish on there, too. Um, you know what? We played in a place called The Kitchen Sink, and the... That was in Hollywood on like Sunset near Western, and they had an S and M place upstairs, so it was hard to record, you know, because like if you were doing vocals, you'd hear like people like <laughs> screaming and making a lot of noise. People get the ass. That's it, we call that atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> it ended up being that, you know, I couldn't couldn't do anything about it. But you see the suited. Uh, gentleman going up the stairs with the briefcase and then you hear the yelling and uh, spanking and all, all that stuff going on but yeah we recorded a lot of that stuff at, at the kitchen sink you know and, uh, but I like, I, I like uh, Funk Attack and um, Shock It To Me yeah you know what Shock It To Me is the, uh, is the first one me and my brother wrote together yeah, shock it to me. And uh, no, actually, Funk Attack is Funk Attack. We played at a party um, before we were actually Martial Law, and we played. We wrote that first, Funk Attack, and then we wrote. I think we wrote we wrote a couple other ones, but we wrote Shock It to Me around that same time. Yeah. So, so is there? So why why did you end up going to Weapon of Choice, and 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 he kind of went more and he did his own thing and. Well, uh, we were doing uh, demos because we were signed. We were signed to a, a what they call a development deal uh, with uh, Island Re Island Records, actually. And um, we uh, we got you know we got a develop a development deal, and my brother wasn't he didn't want to sign to anything basically, you know, and. At this time, the Chili Peppers were also looking for a guitar player, and so uh, I encouraged him to to go with the, go with the Chili Peppers. You know, I ended up doing a the, I, doing it as a solo a development deal, and that's where I put um, Weapon of Choice together. I met Kefis, the keyboard player. Mm -hmm. The I met him. Uh, he was going. To, he was from Colorado, and he was at USC. And his first night out was uh, 
he, I met him. I used to play at this club called Sm uh, Smoky Hose, which was a, it was like the place that everybody went to in in in, in L.A. You know, and uh, so uh, yeah, uh, this place, Kefis, he came out. That was his first night out when he came to L.A. He he met me. He saw me playing, and we took we talked. And, you know, he said he played keyboard. He told me his influence. He was in the Graham Central Station, too. So that's all I had to hear, really, you know. And, and uh, he said he had a clav, too, and, and a move, you know. I was like, okay, let's play tomorrow then, you know. And so me and Keith has got together the next day, and we played, you know, we played. And uh, we, just, we just played. We had a connection. We, we have a, a magical connection you know to when we get together you know it's like the chemist the sonic chemist you know and so we had that playful thing you know the interaction that was powerful and um you know it it be he played on my demo my solo demo for uh, island records and um then uh chris blackwell who's the head of uh island records he he just he said he didn't like the demo basically, you know. Mm -hmm. He said he didn't like it, and he didn't say why or give any constructive, uh, you know, anything. Just said he didn't like it, and so I understood it. The songs were some of the songs we were re-record and they would be on Weapon of Choice records. Like we did, we did Slave Driver was on my um, my uh, demo, and Just Cause She Was Nice was on the demo, and. Uh, what else? Something else, but all the songs, none of the songs sounded like the other song, you know, which I could see for a record company person or anybody that's thinking from that perspective on how am I going to market this, you know, that would be a headache for them. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not mad at them, but I wanted to, to, to create a, a lane for music to be like all-encompassing and just uh, free, expressive, without having to be boxed into a thing like, oh, you're this, you're that. I don't even want to be called anything. You know, I don't mean nutmeg. You know, which can incorporate everything. It's hard to do that on a major label. Yeah, 